Today's reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. We're so glad that you've joined us, whether here in person or online, to worship the Lord on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, this year in our church services, we have been looking at the one story that unifies all of Scripture. So back in January, we started with the book of Genesis, and we're working our way to Revelation. And it's rather fitting that this Sunday, on this first Sunday of Advent, we would find ourselves in the book of 1 Peter. As the Goforth family reminded us earlier, the first candle in the Advent wreath is a candle that we light that symbolizes hope. And it's Peter who is preeminently the apostle of, of hope. As Paul is the apostle of faith and John is the apostle of love. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, which you can find uh, towards the back of your Bible. And as you're waking, uh, just making your way there, you might have noticed uh, these bandages on my nose I would love to have a really cool story to uh, account for this. Uh, I'd love to be able to tell you that, you know, I, I was attempting to foil a robbery or I was going for big air and a half pipe or was trying my hand at amateur boxing, but there is no cool story. I was just down uh, <laughs> uh, playing volleyball with some friends at the sand volleyball court down by our neighborhood pool. And uh, it just so happens that uh, my teammate and I were both going up for the same ball at the net. I didn't see him, and he didn't see me, and his uh, very big and bony elbow plowed into my very soft and tender face, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, yeah, I, got, I got a few stitches and a broken nose and a deviated septum, which required surgery to fix, and that happened this past Monday, so if I, uh, if I sounded a little nasally, I apologize. I hope you'll just bear with me. Uh, I'm still glad to be with you. And, and I think that's because the, the book of 1 Peter addresses a question that is a, unfortunately a very relevant one for the faithful follower of God. And that question is this, how should we respond when we encounter suffering? Now, when I say suffering, I'm not talking about, oh gosh, they don't have any more pumpkin spice latte or, you know, your, your, your favorite TV show didn't get renewed for another season or you had to wait through three iterations of red lights to make that turn on the Hazelball Boulevard. Uh, specifically, the kind of, of, of suffering for, uh, Peter is going to be talking about here is, is the kind of suffering that comes on account of our faith. 
So it's suffering, uh, not in spite of being Christians, but in fact because we're Christians. Now, I realize Christians have enjoyed a favored status for much of our nation's history. But as we take a broader look at history, we see this is not the norm. Uh, just think of faithful Old Testament saints like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. Think of the early Christians in the Colosseum. Or, or think of what happens today in countries like China or places like North Africa or the Middle East. I'm very grateful for the way that religious liberty is enumerated in the First Amendment, uh, but I think it would be naive of us to conclude that this somehow is going to insulate us from hardship associated with following Jesus. I hope I don't sound like a doomsday prophet, but I, I do see evidence that leads me to wonder if we are moving in a direction similar to that of Peter's original audience. A situation where those of us who are followers of Jesus will increasingly find that, that our morals, that our beliefs, that our practices, that our values will cause us to stand out from the larger culture. And this in turn will lead to our society viewing us with suspicion or mistrust or disapproval. Already in, in some Sections of society, we see the claim that Christianity is toxic. Uh, we see harassment on college campuses of students and student organizations who would align themselves with the teachings of Scripture. Groups like InterVarsity Christian Fellowship have been derecognized or placed on probation at places like Vanderbilt University or Tufts or the University of Iowa. In the media, we see that the term religious liberty is increasingly put in Scare quotes, as if to suggest this is something that should be viewed with skepticism. An organization called the Human Rights Campaign recently released a document entitled A Blueprint for Positive Change, and part of it is directed at the Department of Education. And the positive change that they're demanding is that Christian colleges and universities abandon their moral convictions and embrace the sexual revolution or lose their accreditation. And my goal isn't to try and scare anyone because I really think, like, if we are aligned with God, there is absolutely nothing to fear. But I just want to point out that this message that Peter has to share could be a relevant one for us. Now, I think it could be try, uh, tempting to try and convince ourselves that if somehow, if we as Christians, if we, could, if we could just love the way Jesus loved, if we could serve the way he served, if we could, if we could be winsome in the way that we share him, that somehow the world will just embrace us. And I want to ask you a question. Uh, do you think it's possible to be more loving and gracious and winsome than Jesus was? Probably not, right? He was going to be the best at it. And so if, if Jesus was still rejected and despised, I wonder what would make us think that somehow that we will be any more likable. I, I, I just... <laughs> I, I think of what Jesus told his disciples in John 15 when he said, uh, if, they persecute, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And, and so just according to Jesus, suffering for our faith is, is something uh, that we need to be prepared for. Uh, and, and, and Peter's going to talk about suffering here, uh, and the kind specifically related to persecution, but I, I think the application could be broader this morning. And I think it would apply to any kind of suffering we might experience living in a fallen world. 
And so if you're suffering uh, along the lines of something related to bereavement, sickness, illness, or just even the consequences of just sin in a fallen world, uh, pay attention to the applications he has because I, I think it's much broader than just persecution. And with that in mind, now we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We read these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were five Roman provinces in what is today modern-day Turkey. At the close of this letter, Peter reveals that he is writing from Babylon, uh, but we're pretty certain this wasn't the ancient city of Babylon. Uh, this is most likely Rome. Uh, what we see is that uh, in, in the book of Revelation, a, a reference to Babylon is simply an allusion to uh, a center of earthly power that opposed to God. And so in, in Peter's day, that, that center of earthly power would have been Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And it's worth noting here how Peter wants his readers to identify themselves. He calls them exiles. And what Peter is doing is helping his re readers realize that their new allegiance to God has loosened their ties to the society in which they live. Uh, depending on the translation you have in front of you, you might see the word exiles translated as foreigners or sojourners or resident aliens. For much of my childhood, uh, my dad served as a chaplain in the U.S. Army, and on, on three separate occasions... Uh, the army stationed him to Germany. And so that went, uh, we as a family, uh, we moved to Germany and we lived there. Uh, we, we bought and, and drove German cars. Uh, we bought German food from the German bakeries. We carried around German Deutschmarks in our wallet. And even though we lived in Germany, our citizenship still wasn't German, was it? We, we were just residents there, resident aliens, sojourners. And in the same way, Peter is using this word exiles to stress this idea that we as Christians live in this world as foreigners, since our citizenship is in heaven. That's our homeland. And foreignness means that we will sometimes be set apart from our society. Similar to like when the Germans would want to put mayonnaise on my French fries. That's just, you know... <laughs> I, I couldn't go along with that practice. I was happy for my foreignness to stand out. And similarly, there's going to be times where our culture will say, hey, these are the practices that are socially acceptable. And our identity as followers of Jesus will cause us to say, well, no, we can't engage in those practices. And then that's going to put us at odds with our culture. And suffering is likely to follow. Th this is a major theme in Peter's letter. In chapter 1, verse 6, he speaks of various trials. We move on to chapter 2, verse 19. Peter speaks of enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. Chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about being slandered and reviled for good behavior in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 12, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. At least 15 different times in this letter, Peter refers to suffering, and he uses eight different Greek words to do so. And he's writing because he wants to encourage and equip his readers to deal 
with this reality. He wants them to know that God hasn't abandoned them when they're subject to verbal abuse or slander or malicious talk. He wants them to know that God hasn't forgotten them uh, when, when they're maligned in the workplace or in the public square or at home or even worse. Now, for a guy who is writing to people who are experiencing hardship, we'll see that Peter begins this letter in a really unlikely way. He starts with praise. He begins with the doxology. And this reminds me of an email I received this week from one of the small business owners in our community, uh, Keith and Emily Davis, who'll be here in the second service. Uh, they own Fleet Feet Sports. And earlier this week, Emily sent out this note of encouragement to those who shop at Fleet Feet. It turned out to be a note of perspective as well for me. She writes, we just had our weekly staff meeting to finalize preparations for Black Friday weekend. But because we're in a pandemic, we already had to make some changes. We discussed how we will manage store capacity this weekend. We discussed the need to change a couple social events because continuing with them felt irresponsible. I sat in the meeting feeling bummed, frustrated, and disappointed. Anybody ever experienced those emotions? Yeah. The newly termed phrase COVID fatigue is real. We are all feeling it. But then I looked down at the shirt I was wearing. Our theme this season is be blessed. This theme is posted in the storefront windows. It will be our sticker on gift bags this season. And everyone on our staff has the same shirt. I just had to look down to be reminded to look up. I am blessed. Sure, this Thanksgiving season isn't how I pictured it. And Christmas won't be how I pictured it. But oh, how blessed I am. I don't know about you, but this was a perspective I needed to hear this past week because, you know, having a nose surgery and uh, meeting my insurance deductible at year end wasn't exactly how I envisioned my Thanksgiving going. And what I want us to see is, is really that in the midst of, of circumstances that are far more difficult, there's joy and gladness on Peter's lips as he begins this letter. Moving out of the introduction right now, into the start of the letter, verse 3, here's how he begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with this doxology. I'm stopping right here, but in the Greek, verses 3 to 12 are actually one long sentence. It begins with this main clause right here, and everything that follows are subordinate clauses that modify it. In the midst of the trials, Peter is able to give thanks, and I want us to see that his rationale for praising God comes from the perspective that, that he gains as he looks in three directions. First, he looks back. If you're taking notes, he looks back. He's able to exclaim, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, check it out. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. All right, I have a question for all the grammarians here. When Peter says he has caused us to be born again, what tense is he writing in? Are we in past tense, present tense, or future tense? It's past tense, isn't it? Yeah. He's looking back. He, he is speaking about a reality that has already occurred. And the focus is on God's initiative in bringing about this change. 
God is the one acting, and we are the ones being acted upon. If you have been born again, it's because of God's great mercy. No one ever gets to take any credit for being born, do they? I mean, you don't see babies in the maternity ward slapping each other on the back, saying, hey, good job, buddy. Nice work, pal. They don't do that, do they? All the credit goes to mom. In the same way, we can't take credit for our spiritual birth, for the transformation that takes place inside us when we place our faith in Jesus and God makes us a part of his family. It's God who regenerates us and gives us this spiritual birth. We're told that the benefits of receiving this new birth are twofold. It's accompanied by a living hope and an inheritance. You see, um, you know, time has a way of destroying most hopes. In high school, I entertained the hope of one day playing professional volleyball on the AVP Beach Tour. But that hope is now dead. I, uh, I never got a 40-inch vertical, and it's, it's not going to happen now. And maybe you too can think of some hopes of yours that have faded with the passage of time. Peterson tells us about a hope that is never going to die. It's always alive because it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus lives, this hope is guaranteed. It's always alive. And our new birth not only brings this living hope, but also an inheritance. It's entirely possible that Peter's original audience may have been physically displaced because of persecution. And back in the first century, one's wealth was most often vested in the land. So a relocation would have meant a loss of one's inheritance. And even if these early Christians had not been physically displaced, their identity as Christians would have limited their ability to participate in the various guilds, which would have affected their social status. They would have been marginalized and had fewer opportunities in the marketplace. And Peter wants his readers to know that their, their new birth into God's family brings with it a new inheritance. I just want you to think about what it would be like if the, the personal attorneys for, let's just say, I don't know, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and, and Jeff Bezos, they all called you. And they say, hey, I just want to deliver a, a message to you uh, on behalf of, of my client. Uh, my client has decided that you are going to be the, the, the sole beneficiary of their estate. You're going to inherit everything. That'd be pretty exciting news, wouldn't it? Well, that inheritance would pale into comparison to what God has prepared for those who love him. See, all, all the blessings and benefits that our Jesuses will be shared with us. The Bible tells us that we will be co-heirs with Christ. Oftentimes, suffering can bring with it this feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. It just seems like things are all out of our control. But Peter wants us to know that this inheritance that we have in Christ is kept in heaven for us. It is completely secure. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He, he is emphasizing in the strongest way possible the, the, the certainty and the permanence of this reward. 
It doesn't fluctuate with the markets. It isn't subject to inflation. It isn't pinned to the value of the dollar. It isn't contingent upon our health. It is far beyond the reach of anything that might happen in this world. When you find yourself in the midst of a trial, look back. Stop for a moment and reflect on all the things that God has already done for you. In his great mercy, he has already caused you to be born again, and you've received a living hope and the best inheritance possible. Look back. But as we continue reading, we see Peter's outlook doesn't remain focused on the past. As we read on, we see he turns his thoughts to the present. In verse 5, there's a switch. From the past tense to the present tense, he writes, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we go through trials, we also need to look within. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about like, hey, search deep within yourself for just some kind of inner strength that's going to enable you to power through. I'm not talking about some kind of humanism or just good old-fashioned positivity. When I say look within, I'm talking about being aware of what's happening inside you to the inner man. Being cognizant of, of what God is doing in you as you go through this hardship. When we go through difficulties, Peter points out that our suffering accomplishes something within us. When we encounter various trials and we still cling to Jesus, something happens. Our faith is revealed to be genuine. You, you see, when suffering comes our way, we've got two options. We're either going to run to Jesus or we're going to run from Jesus. And when we run to Jesus, we put the goodness of Jesus on display. And also what happens is the suffering can actually serve to strengthen our faith. So when, when Peter and John are dragged before the religious leaders at Acts 4, they're threatened and they respond essentially by saying, you can do to us whatever you want, but we're still going to obey God and we're still going to share about Jesus. Well, what happens is the sincerity of their faith is put on display for everyone to see. It's revealed to be real faith. It's proved genuine. And just as, as fire tests gold to see if there's any impurities in it, the trials of life test our faith and they prove its sincerity. Trials allow us to be confident that, that what we have in Christ is real. And in contrast to pure gold, pure faith is of far greater worth, Peter tells us. And that's because its value will never pass away. You see, when Jesus returns, there's going to be no taking all of our gold, like dragging it before him and say, hey, can I cash this in for some heavenly credit? but our faith will be rewarded. If hardship comes, know that nothing is wasted in God's economy. He's growing you. The people I know who have the strongest faith are oftentimes the people who have walked through the hardest trials. 
And if you feel like you're in the midst of a crucible right now, just look within for a moment and be encouraged at what God might be doing inside you, how he might be growing you. Now, in this passage we just looked at, we see Peter can't help but shift his thoughts back and forth between the present and the future. In verse 5, he writes, Who by God's power are being guarded, that's present tense, right? Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's looking future. Then very simply in verse 7, he says, The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, he's, he's looking ahead. So Peter, he looks back, he looks within, and finally, he looks ahead. As Christians, we're called to be future-oriented. According to the Bible, this is not supposed to be your best life now. It's not. See, as Christians, we have to recognize that we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And what happened to Jesus? This is the first that he endured the cross and scorned its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It was cross before the crown. And that same pattern is given to us. We are to take up our cross and we're to follow him in the hope that one day we're going to receive the crown of righteousness that God's going to reward to everyone who has longed for his appearing. Several years ago, there was a popular game show hosted by Regis Philpin called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Anybody see this one? You guys are familiar with this? So you, okay, some of you know how this worked. Regis would ask a, a contestant a series of increasingly difficult questions. And with each correct answer, the contestant would have the opportunity to earn a larger sum of money. No one had ever answered all 15 questions correctly and won the million-dollar purse until this IRS agent by the name of John Carpenter sat down across from Regis. He cruised through those first 14 questions, and he reached the million-dollar question, which was to correctly identify the U.S. president who appeared on the television series Laugh-In. And if you watched that episode, or if you haven't, you can go back, you can watch it on YouTube— you saw just for a moment this little smile flash across John's face right after Regis finished reading that question. And then John Carpenter told Regis he wanted to use his lifeline to phone a friend. He wanted to call his dad. And when John's dad came on the line, instead of asking for his dad's advice and reading the question, John shocked everyone watching. He said, hey, dad. I don't need your help answering the question. I just wanted to let you know I'm about to win a million dollars. Regis hadn't told John that he had won the million dollars. ABC hadn't handed him a check. The guy was still on the hot seat. But from the moment the question was read, he began to celebrate in his spirit because he knew the answer and he knew how the game was going to end. What I want you to know is that we can live our lives in much the same way. No matter what kind of hardship comes our way, no matter what the difficulties are that we encounter, no matter how fiery the trial, we know how it all ends. Our faith will be rewarded at a future point in time, and it will result in praise and glory and honor, both for us and for Jesus. 
I like what commentator Warren Wearsby writes. He says, hope is not a sedative. It's a shot of adrenaline. In other words, knowing what the future holds isn't like this sedative that just puts us in a rocking chair and makes us complacent until we await Jesus coming back for us. Instead, what hope does is it puts us in the marketplace. It puts us in the classroom. It gives us the strength to persevere. It it helps us move forward and keep on no matter what's coming our way. You know what's really interesting uh, uh, about this letter and this topic of suffering that comes from the pen of Peter? It's that 30 years prior to writing this letter, Peter, the same guy who who wrote this letter, he had had a face-to-face conversation with Jesus about suffering. It's recorded for us at the end of John's gospel. It happens after uh, Jesus has risen from the dead, but before he ascends to heaven. And, And Peter and Jesus, they're walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says this, reading from verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. The apostle John adds this parenthetical comment. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then Jesus continues. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. I think Peter responds in a way that I probably would have for sure. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Isn't this what we do when suffering comes our way? We look around. What about them? How come him, her? How how come I'm not blessed like that person? Or what about their kids or their parents? And we want to compare. We want to look around. And here's how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Ouch. In other words, don't look around. You keep your focus on me, is what he tells Peter. Follow Jesus. If if the fiery trial comes, there is still cause for joy. Look back with, with gladness and what God has already done for you. And then look within and be encouraged by what he is doing in you. And then look ahead with anticipation and what he will do for you one day. Can I pray for us? God, you know that trials, the hardships, the sufferings that all of us are encountering, some very serious trials. And I thank you that you haven't left us alone. I thank you for your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. I thank you that you would reveal yourself to be the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And God, right now there are some 
that need to be reminded of your goodness. And I pray that you would draw near to them in a very special way. I pray that you would use your word that you inspired this morning to come and to bring encouragement and to give that living hope and help us to fix our eyes on the things that you've prepared for those who love you. And God, for the person here who, in the midst of their suffering, might feel very helpless and hopeless because they don't have Jesus, I pray that you would be at work in their heart and that you would bring about the conviction needed in order for them to place their faith in you. Yet if that's you, if you know that you have never been able to say from your heart, blessed be the Godfather of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be able to celebrate those same things that Peter just celebrated, if you know you can't do that but you want to, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. You could just say a prayer like this in the quietness of your heart. God, I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to live the perfect life I could never live and to bear the punishment I deserve to bear for the consequences of my sin. And I place my faith in him. Jesus, I thank you for clothing me with your righteousness and allowing me to receive all the benefits and blessings that are yours. And I thank you for sending your spirit to come and to take up residence in me and to help me live for you. I want to serve you now all my days. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.